Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Uh, you may be slightly surprised to see me speaking this morning since I spoke only two weeks ago. Me too. Uh, Victoria Alexander was dying to speak, but uh, she's had a hip operation, nothing serious, uh, but uh, I'm standing in for her. And uh, we've reached the middle of Mark chapter 10 in our series from Mark's Gospel, and I'll be reading that from, from that in a moment, so if you have a Bible, it would be helpful to have it open at that passage. I'm going to be reading from verse 32 down to verse 46. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we look at that, let's pray. Father, once again, as we consider your word, please help us to learn and help us to follow you better. Amen. That passage that I've just read begins by telling us that Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. They were going for the Passover. And we're told that the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Now, we don't know why they were astonished and afraid. It may be that the disciples were still reflecting on Jesus' teaching about how difficult it is to get into the kingdom of God. It may be that they were astonished because despite Jesus saying that he was going to be handed over to death by the chief priests, he was still determined to go to Jerusalem. 
And it may be that the wider group of followers were concerned and fearful because of what Jesus had said about persecution. In any event, uh, the group was decidedly uneasy. There was an air of foreboding. And Jesus must have increased that air of foreboding because he made his third prediction of his death. And this one was the most specific of all of them. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And he knew it was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told precisely how the disciples reacted on this occasion, but elsewhere we read that the disciples simply couldn't grasp what Jesus was saying about his coming death. In their minds, the idea of Jesus suffering and dying was completely incompatible with his confirmation that he was the Messiah. God's anointed saviour, the son of God. How did that fit together? Uh, Furthermore, we know that they were hopelessly unsure what he meant by rising from the dead. Now you may think that's ridiculous. It's perfectly obvious what rising from the dead means. Well, it may be obvious to us, but we read history backwards. We have that luxury. We know what happened. We know Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't. They may have thought that Jesus was using some kind of of metaphor. They may have thought he was referring to the resurrection of the righteous on the last day. Pious Jews of their time believed that on the authority of the Old Testament. But if that's what Jesus meant... What was all this business about the third day? And in any event, rising implied that he would die first. And that was the bit they really didn't get. They they were confused. But not so confused that they couldn't look after their own interests. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said... We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Three brief things about that. First of all, and partly for amusement, please note that Mark's account of this is slightly abbreviated. Matthew tells us that James and John came with their mother and that she spoke on their behalf. Let's be clear, these two grown-up fishermen felt so awkward about what they wanted to say to Jesus that they used their mum as their mouthpiece. Uh, Now, we know, incidentally, that their mother was a follower of Jesus. She may even have been Mary's sister, and therefore Jesus' aunt, She was certainly present with Mary at the time of the crucifixion. But that's beside the point. They were clearly awkward about this. We may also feel that what they asked was somewhat bizarre. But it reflects the concerns of their age. We know from the writings of a number of rabbis of that age that there was frequent discussion of the seating plan in heaven. And that's what John and James and John were concerned about. But note, thirdly, 
that although they were confused, they did believe that Jesus would come in glory. They did believe he would come to enter into his kingdom, to be king of the world, and they wanted to be close to him. It would, of course, be nice to believe that they simply loved Jesus so much that they wanted to be right alongside him, but that wasn't the issue. Uh, Just think for a moment about the image of a king seated on his throne. What do the people who sit at his right hand and his left hand have? They have status, don't they? And they have power. We heard last week that Jesus had promised great things for those who follow him. But very sadly... James and John weren't content with that. They wanted more. So, how did Jesus respond? Well, of course, he said, no. To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. I'm afraid I can't help you there, he said, because God has already decided the seating plan in heaven. Do you note there that Jesus yet again, and it's time and again through Mark's Gospel, is indicating that everything that was happening and would happen is in accordance with God's plan. But of course Jesus didn't stop there. He used the request of James and John in order to emphasise a point that he'd made previously. And it's at this point that all of us really need to sit up and take notice. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. In the Old Testament, the image of drinking from a cup is frequently used as a metaphor for receiving something allotted by God. And that can be a good thing, joy, for example, or it can be a bad thing, judgment and suffering. And in the present case, it's clearly the latter that is in mind. Furthermore, uh, on another occasion, Jesus referred to his death as a baptism something that he needed to submit to, something that he would be immersed in in accordance with the will of God. Do you see what he's saying to James and John? He is saying to them that they will suffer on account of being his followers. And suffer they did. If you look at Acts chapter 12, you'll see that James was the first uh, apostolic martyr. And subsequently, his brother John was exiled. But here's the key point. What Jesus said is not about James and John alone. Jesus frequently indicated that following him would involve suffering. Do do you remember uh, what Jesus said uh, that we studied last week? Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel 
will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields. And in the age to come, eternal life. I've left something out, haven't I? Brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, is what he actually said. And what about this from John chapter 15? Remember what I told you, Jesus said. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then think about the parable of the sower. We were reminded of that last week. Do you remember the bit where Jesus said about the rock that fell, sorry, the seed that fell on rocky ground? And the sun came, it it withered and died. What did Jesus say that symbolized? I'll, I'll remind you. Other people, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. And listen to this next bit. When trouble and persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Jesus frequently talked about persecution. Now, to be clear, we are not to seek persecution or suffering. We're told to seek to live at peace with all people, and we certainly shouldn't be gratuitously offensive. But we are called upon to be followers of Jesus, and on the authority of Jesus, we need to remember that his message is offensive to many in the world. Its exclusiveness challenges the relativism of our modern world. Many people simply do not like the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, let alone the idea that no one comes to the Father except by him, to quote Jesus himself. And moreover, people don't like the idea that God lays down requirements for how we are to live our lives. If you doubt that, just cast your eyes back a few verses to the beginning of chapter 10, and remind yourself of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. Now you might say, well, yeah, that's all very well, but do we really suffer persecution on account of being followers of Jesus in the UK today? Well, of course, by comparison with millions of Christians around the world, no, we don't. We don't suffer the kind of persecution that Christians suffer in China, for example. But two things... First of all, there is no doubt that there is an increasing cost in following Jesus in the UK today. A number of Christians have found that, particularly in a work context. Secondly, and probably for most of us more importantly, we need to ask ourselves whether the reason why we don't experience rejection and at least low-grade persecution It's because we simply blend into the world. Because we don't stand up as followers of Jesus. I suggest that it would be a good idea over the next week if we all honestly ask ourselves that question and ask ourselves whether we are standing up as followers of Jesus. But for the moment, we must move on. 
we heard that uh, when the ten, that's the ten other apostles, heard what James and John had done, they were indignant. Now, again, it would be nice to believe that they were indignant because they thought that James and John had let the side down. But from elsewhere, we know that they suffered from exactly the same wrong attitude as James and John. No, that wasn't the point. And Jesus, therefore, summoned them all together in order to give them a severe lecture. It's a bit like a sports team after a really bad performance with no one cooperating with one another. The manager may call them together for a very severe team talk. That's certainly what Jesus did here. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave uh, of, of all. I'm very sorry. This was bound to happen today because I predicted it. I have completely forgotten the point I wanted to make at that point. So I'm really sorry about that. Actually, this is perhaps the most serious losing of my place I have had for a very long time. Right, yes. Very sorry about that. Jesus has made that point on another occasion previously, hadn't he? We heard that a few weeks ago. And he was to make it again on other occasions. He was saying that we simply must not devote ourselves to gaining power and status. Rather, we should devote ourselves to being servants of one another. Two weeks ago when I was speaking, I pointed out that many of the disciples, many of the apostles' errors derived from the fact they didn't understand Jesus and they didn't understand his mission. And Jesus put his finger exactly on that point here. Take a look at verse 45, which Chris quoted earlier. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come to earth? He came to draw people to God. He came to warn people and above all he came to die, to give his life a ransom for many. The word there translated ransom was a word used to refer to the paying of a price to free a slave. And Jesus paid the price to free us from slavery to sin. Years later, Peter said this, this is 1 Peter 2.2, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus came as a servant and we are called upon to imitate him. This comes from Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature 
of a servant. Yes, I know, I quoted that two weeks ago. But it's so important. We really all need constantly to remind ourselves of it and keep it in mind. Now, you may say, well, I'm not sure quite how this applies to me because all this talk about people lording it over others and high officials, I'm not like that. I don't have great status in the world. I don't exercise great power in the world. And that's probably true. Very few people do. But neither did the apostles. And Jesus talked to them about this. Of course, the more power we have, the greater the danger for us. The famous 19th century historian, Lord Acton, said, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But that doesn't mean the rest of us can ignore this. No, even if we have very little power or none at all, we can fall into the same wrong attitude as the apostles because we can pursue the status and power that we feel we lack. Let's all just think about our own situation at the moment. Do you have a job? Um, It doesn't matter whether it's a paid or voluntary job, full or part-time. Just think about it for the moment. In your job, do you act as a servant? Think about your relationships with your colleagues. It doesn't matter whether they're senior or junior. Think about, if you're in an office context, how you deal with other departments. Or, Or more generally, think about all those who you encounter during your job. They might be customers, clients, suppliers, whatever. Do you act as a servant in relation to all of them, in relation to everything you're doing in your work? A servant of them, and indeed a servant of God. And then what about outside a work context? Think of all the things we do in our lives, the people we encounter. Think of going shopping, Think of having someone come and do work for you, perhaps on your flat or house. Think about relating to our children, if if you have them. We need to ask ourselves, do we act as servants in all of those contexts? Or do we rather unthinkingly and perhaps arrogantly exercise the power that we have in relation to all these things? And then what about the church? Do note that Jesus was actually talking to the apostles about their relationships between themselves. He was talking about how his followers relate with one another. And we need to ask ourselves, how do we relate in the church? Do we act as servants of one another in the church, using all that we have, all that we've been given by God, to serve one another. Incidentally, some people confuse being a servant with the surrender of authority and power. But the two things are completely different. When God sent Jesus to the world, he didn't surrender his authority and power. No, he used his authority and power to be our servant, to benefit us. 
And, and likewise, the, the Bible recognizes there is a need for authority and power in society. Indeed, it stresses that it is God-given. There is a distinction between, for example, being a servant manager or a servant leader and being a weak manager or a weak leader. There's a difference between being a servant teacher or servant parent and being a teacher or parent who doesn't exercise any control. The point Jesus was making is precisely that power is not the issue. The issue is that we serve, that we are a servant in everything that we do. And I would suggest again that along with reflecting on what Jesus said about uh, suffering and, and persecution, that we should over the coming week just gently reflect about all of our relationships, at work if we work, at home, in the church, wherever, and just ask ourselves in relation to all of this, am I serving? Am I being a slave to all? I know that this talk has been what is sometimes called a content-rich sermon. But at heart, it's really quite simple. We need to remember two things. First of all, we need to remember Jesus' warning regarding the inevitability of persecution and suffering. And second we need to remember Jesus' requirement regarding being a servant, being slave to all. Let's do that. Amen.